Hello and welcome to Got It Film, the podcast where Christian and atheist dive into the best that cinema has to offer and see if we can find any parallels with gospel or any other Bible stories. I'm filmmaker and token white boy, Giles Goff, and sadly, Phil can't be with us today. He's currently repatriating vibranium from the fictional museum of Great Britain, whether they like it or not. So instead, we have a guest co-host. Oh, is that me? Yes, that's you. Hello, um, I'm Louisa, and if I was a pizza topping, I'd be ham and pineapple. Some people like it, but it's probably going to hell. <laughs> okay, all right, coming in pretty hard with the uh, the the sort of hate on the Hawaiians uh, pizza. So, Louis. Oh no, it's the ham. I- I'm okay with the pineapple on the pizza. Right, uh, Louisa is far too modest, but to say, but she is the host of the RE podcast, and we are absolutely honoured to have her. And today we're going to be looking at Marvel's Black Panther: Wakanda Forever. The 2022 film directed by Ryan Coogler, the sequel to 2018's Black Panther, that was able to carry on the franchise despite the tragic death of Chadwick Boseman in 2020 due to cancer. We'll be looking at the relationship between grief and deconstruction, funeral rituals, and why making deals with the devil is probably not a great idea so louisa yes what did you think of this film it's really hard isn't it when you're when you're watching a sequel Mm. to not have expectations and to kind of take the other film out Mm. of your head and just see it as a standalone so i think if i did that it's very very beautiful yeah but i think it's it's always hard when you watch a film where it's different to to what the first one was in in quite a significant way where the characters that you have have kind of connected to are no longer there and so to make that adjustment i found quite hard but it's it's a it's a great 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 action movie a lovely storyline beautifully conceived looks very beautiful yeah it is a definitely a film that benefits from a rewatch because the first time you're going into it you've got into your head of everything that you want it to be and when you get to see it the second time you get to see it for everything that it actually is yes. you know yes and how can I put it? I went into this film expecting to be bawling my eyes out. So, and this is the problem with Marvel movies is that the standard is so high. Things like Infinity War, Endgame, and No Way Home can absolutely change the game and change the landscape of pop culture completely. That if a film comes out and it's just fine and enjoyable, mm. <laughs> then it almost can feel a bit like a failure, you know? Yeah. And I, I love the way that they deal, dealt with the loss of a character, mm-hmm. that they didn't gloss over it. They didn't make a massive deal out of it. It was part of the storyline and it was, you know, it was the sort of motivation for a lot of it, but it wasn't it wasn't voyeuristic. They didn't, you know, that kind of stuff. I thought they dealt with it very beautifully. Yeah, definitely. Now, Louisa, I'm going to introduce you to somebody now for our next section. And how can I put this? You're going to feel intimidated. You're going to feel a little bit uh, like you're not quite good enough because this guy is so freaking awesome and the rest of us just have to deal with it. Are you ready for that? I mean, it's the story of my life now. Well, ladies and gentlemen, for the final time this series, may I present to you <gasps> Matt's Facts. This week, we're talking about Wakanda Forever. And I feel that the best way to start this is to talk about Namor. Namor was created in 1939 by writer and artist Bill Everett. Now, throughout the Golden Age, he quickly proved himself to be a fan favourite. And in fact, one of the top three characters, alongside 
the original Human Torch and Captain America. And it was during this time that he was hailed as comic book's first anti-hero, which was quite a big feat at the time. Now, during World War II, Namor was dragged into conflict on the surface world, namely the war itself. And alongside Captain America, the original Vision, the original Human Torch, Toro, and many, many others, he was part of a group known as the Invaders. Now, it was during these that Namor's personality as well, it went through several different changes. And the way it is now explained is that Namor had a bipolar disorder, which probably makes him one of the first, if not the first character, to show any signs of a true mental illness like that, which again was quite a big thing for its time. Now all of this played a great big part in a lot of things, including his disappearance. You see, Namor after the war vanished into obscurity and didn't feature again in a comic until 1962 in the pages of Fantastic Four, where the Human Torch, this time the one we all know, Johnny Storm, found an amnesiac Namor in the Bowery in New York. Now this has been retconned a few times, but not in the main way. It's always stayed the same. He's always been amnesiac and lost. But it was also included that he'd sought help from Professor Xavier. And that he'd tried to deal with these issues he had had. With all this in mind, Johnny Storm and the Fantastic Four then took Namor back home to Atlantis. Where he was crowned and given rule over his people again. And it was during this time that he began to re-emerge, become reacquainted with the audiences at the time. In fact, he would frequently appear in early issues of the Avengers, alongside the Hulk, as foes of the main Avengers groups. It's also been revealed in recent times that Namor is actually one of the first mutants of the modern age as well. Not just Atlantean, not just human, but something else as well. Now, Namor was born of an Atlantean princess and a human father. Now, forgive me if that sounds familiar, because it is. And it's a common occurrence when films and franchises that rely on mythology for a lot of their continuity, it means there are similarities. DC has Aquaman, Marvel has Namor. And if Marvel had decided to stick with a lot of the original lore around Namor, we would have ended up with a film very similar to DC's Aquaman, which obviously wouldn't have been a great move. And as a result, they've taken something more or less true to the character in the comic book lore, but put the twist on it, making it fit inside their franchise. Most importantly, they have kept one of Namor's greatest recurring themes, and that is his distrust of the human surface world. It takes a lot from the comic books itself. In the comics, Namor once flooded Wakanda with a tidal wave. Now, 
it takes a lot of things and makes them real. Shuri, for example, the sister of T'Challa, has even had a brief run in the comics as Black Panther. Not just that, they've brought in Riri Williams, a character relatively new in Marvel, but very true to how she appears in the comics. Now, to briefly touch back on Shuri, while T'Challa, Black Panther, was first released in 1966, we didn't actually meet his younger sister Shuri until 2005. And the same can be said of Riri Williams, Ironheart, who only appeared and debuted in the comics in 2016. And it just shows how Marvel has this wonderful ability to take characters that have some of them their oldest properties and these newest characters and seamlessly make them work in an interesting and fulfilling way. He knows some stuff, doesn't he? Knows he knows some stuff. I mean, this, is, this, this is not his first rodeo. Um, it's almost like he, he, he knows what he's talking about. Yes, absolutely. Can I ask a question, though? This is a question, and I use this word a lot, mm-hmm. which is the word anti-hero. Yeah. And in my head, it's someone who is... When they're, I guess they're trying to sort of like play with the idea of goodies and baddies, mm. that actually there's a spectrum of characters. And is it is an anti-hero maybe not necessarily a bad character turned good, but a bad character that does something that maybe redeems themselves? What is it? What's your understanding of a anti-hero? Do you know what? That is absolutely fascinating. I think I wouldn't necessarily put it in terms of a binary of they are a bad character that does something good or something like that. I would simply say that they are a character that, is morally flexible in some way shape or form so do you know what they're the one they they call it the one rule in comic books a lot of the time no tell me giles tell me so the one rule is that the heroes don't kill and it right it came in as a um editorial decisions early on and then the comics code authority sort of bring this in this idea in and this is why you have so many characters who are refusing to kill a lot of the time uh, mm. Batman would be a really good good example of that. And I think an argument could be made that for somebody to be an anti-hero, they are probably willing to compromise the one rule. One uh, Wolverine is a really good example yeah. of that. And Captain America? That's an, Captain well, America do you know, Captain America kills people like nobody's business, which is really yeah. interesting. And we talked about that in, uh, in depth in the Captain America episode. There's an exception to every rule, and obviously Captain America is probably there because that dude is clearly a hero by any, any demonstrable yes. standards. But then again, he does sort of turn his back on America in Winter Soldier. So when it comes down to whether he's a hero or anti-hero, really possibly depends on your way of looking at it and your perspective i guess listeners you decide (laughs) (laughs) now it's time for (gasps) finding the faith in the film I was, I, was, I was being giles (laughs) (laughs) not oh no say that again Uh, i've forgotten his name phil I was being Phil. See, I was, see, I was Phil, scared. they've already forgotten you. That's how quickly we've moved on. <laughs> Phil who? Yeah. I miss you. Please come back. 
Don't ever leave me. <laughs> now, ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor, it is my privilege to introduce a friend who I have known for absolutely decades before she was all kinds of wonderful. Basically, whenever she comes on the show, we tend to just throw the format out the window and we just let her do whatever she wants and it always comes up gold dust. I'm going to let her introduce herself. Good evening, everyone. I am your official Wakanda ambassador by night and your friendly neighbourhood dentist by day. My official title is Nubian goddess, naturally. But for one night only, let's drop the titles and you can call me Sefer. Hey, Seth. Hey, it's Jazz. so good. It's good to see you. So for a bit of context, I went with Sefer and her husband to see this film uh, when it came out. And I was like, um, I don't know. I'm not sure if I can find any faith parallels with it. And then she sat there throughout the film just nudging me going, there's one. There's one. There's another one. So I decided <laughs> that when it comes to smart people wanting to do stuff on my podcast, I just let them do it. So this is entirely Sefa's rodeo from here on in. It's literally like you said, I can't. And I was like, challenge accepted. <laughs> um, so I, I'm super excited to be here and I have a ton of stuff to talk about. So I hope you guys are like all belted in because yeah, there's a lot, but it's really, really cool. Fantastic. Before, just before we get into it, what did you think of the film, Seth? Ah, oh, it blew me away. It blew me away in a different way to the first film. Mm-hmm. I think for me, I think I told you that I sat I sat and watched all of the credits, which is something that I very rarely do unless I'm with Giles. Yeah. <laughs> I sat and watched all the credits and I bawled my eyes out because it was for me one of the first times I'd seen on screen a character who that I could relate to, look like me, had a culture like me that had so much depth and breadth often those characters were so two-dimensional mm. and for this movie I think kind of again seeing the familiarity on the cultural level of the things that were going on felt it felt like warm and fuzzy and of course the film itself is not warm and fuzzy but there was a familiarity to some of the parts of the story that that made me feel at home and I just I just think it was beautiful and really beautifully done like a a piece of art more than Mm. film work absolute a little bit of context for you sefa is too cool for school uh (laughs) pretty much in general and definitely had no interest whatsoever in uh comic book characters at all Mm -mm. but one thing that marvel studios tend to do is they tend to release a film around my birthday so that's like late april it is really nice and me and kevin Me and Kevin, it's like, cheers, buddy. So what we've done for a lot of years is we've all dressed up as different Avengers Mm -hmm. to go out and see see these films. So we went out for Infinity War. That was a good one. Um, That was a good one. So I'd already, like for Civil War, I dressed up as Captain America. And for Infinity War, I dressed up as Hawkeye, only to find out that Hawkeye wasn't actually in the film. So that was (laughs) an excellent choice. And Sefa, before, she was like... Oh, yeah, all right, well, I'll go see it, whatever, I'm not that fussed. And then once she saw Black Panther, she was like, this is amazing! (laughs) (laughs) So, Sefa actually cosplayed as as the Black Panther for this one. She sort of bought the the necklace, Mm -hmm. she started a hashtag for the love of Giles for it, you know? (laughs) 
I want t-shirts. I want t-shirts. And then for the year after, when Endgame came around, she came up dressed as one of the Dora Milaje, and her very, very reluctant and very unfortunate husband got dragged along dressed up as uh, as Black Panther for it as well. So it's it's been a real joy to see Sefa's entry into comic book geek comic book world geekdom from here and just the way you're like okay so they come in and when there's the challenge they have to wear this robe and if they're not wearing this thing then it doesn't count and all the rest of it mm-hmm. seeing you get passionate about something that's in my wheelhouse was absolutely an absolute delight mm. but do you think this is it says a lot doesn't it because actually superheroes look like you Giles mm-hmm. you know obviously like completely buff um you know but at sort of white men Louisa, you've got to stop flirting no with me <laughs> i mean that's oh, a lie you don't have dear. to stop flirting with me please keep doing that um but yeah you're absolutely right and then for me it was wonder woman yeah the first wonder woman yeah where i suddenly thought oh it's the superhero that looks like me you know mm-hmm. so i think actually that's what gets you into superheroes is when it's like the sort of like the version of you that you could be in an alternate yeah. universe isn't mm-hmm. it yeah 100 percent. and it's and that representation is is absolutely massive and it when... being in the cinema in england with everybody raving about it so Obviously, I've seen characters in movies and shows in Ghana, but it being like at the Odeon in my city Mm. and my pals having got to watch it before I did. To me, that's like mind blowing. Couldn't believe it. You're absolutely right. And seeing that kind of representation is so important. So obviously I am white, straight, cisgender, male. I like to think of it as man classic. Um, <laughs> classic as in classic cars. Yeah, 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 yeah. Old with bits for uh, man, man ready salted flavour. Um, ready salted, my word. So you're right. It's not as obvious because there's there's plenty of people out there who look like me. So if I need to sort of put myself into the mindset of what that's like, I try and think. Okay, well, what is the Welsh representation like? You know, mm. and you would not believe how out of the box excited I get when I see a Welsh character on screen who's not the comedy sidekick, who's not some kind of weird kind of hick character. And it's and it's just absolute delight. Anyway, we're not here to talk about Wales. That's almost certainly another podcast. We're here to talk about <laughs> Wakanda Forever. And like I say, Sefa, this is your your gig, your whole thing. And this is like one of the very few Finding the Faith in the Films, which I haven't written in the slightest. So I am <laughs> going to sit back and I'm going to learn some stuff. Take it away, Seth. Amazing. So first off, I think that when you say Wakanda Forever, you've got to say Wakanda Forever. <laughs> <laughs> Get it yeah. right, Giles. Yeah, but when I do it with the with the voice and the accent, then it gets a bit problematic. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Fair. You know, I'll, I'll keep that to this side of the screen. I can. That accent is always there, ready to go along with all the other accents. You know. Right. So um, let's get stuck in, and I'm going to start with a line that I never thought I would say on the God and Film podcast. But here we go. Let's talk funerals. Love it. If you cast your mind back to the film, we see not one but two funerals. Mm -hmm. The first being T'Challa and the second Mm. being Queen Ramonda, which I'll be honest, I'm still trying to come to terms with. Giles and I had a very heated debate outside the cinema as to whether or not she really did need to be killed off. Giles says yes, I say no. Again, listeners, 
you decide. Well, it's the, the reason for that is is whose whose story is Wakanda Forever? For me, I would have to say that is uh, Shuri's story. It's mm. about her accepting the mantle and all the rest of it. And the reason we have so many flipping orphans in fiction is because. If there's a parent nearby who's willing to sort of swoop in and save you, then it reduces the jeopardy. When mm. the throne and the country and the mantle of all that lands on her shoulders... But actually, trauma trauma builds resilience, and resilience is the, the quality you need for leadership. Mm. Yeah. And so, you, you, often people, that's what motivates them. Their trauma motivates them to to want to change the world or makes, you know, do something different. Mm. And I and I guess my objection to that is when I look at stories from Ghana, if this was a Ghanaian story, Queen Ramonda wouldn't necessarily be killed off. She right, okay. would be Queen Mother. And that would be a respected, venerated role in its own right. And those two things could coexist. And and so that's my objection. I appreciate in the storytelling arc, it's probably quite helpful, but I'm still quite sad that she died. Yeah. Hi. Oh, hells yeah. Angela Bassett has a quality that other people don't have. That was one of the things I noticed and I felt it. I felt the absence of it. There is this movie star quality that not every actor has. This kind of effortless charisma. Chadwick had it. Angela Bassett has it. And with respect to all the rest of the cast, not all of them do. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It could quite have easily just have been her film. Yeah, 100%. So when I look back on the scenes in the movie, for me, like I said earlier, they feel... They just feel really familiar. They feel like home. And at the time of watching the movie, I had, um, I've got a good friend, he's called Kobe Graham. He's a writer, literary, kind of culturary person in Ghana. And he lost a couple of family members in quick succession. And I remember him posting and he said, like the world can have everything, but death, death is ours. And I like I felt that in my gut, like watching this great big Wakandan display of no, this is how you do a funeral. Mm. I just kind of like felt I felt that deep in my spirit that yes, this is this is the thing that we as a culture do really well. And you look at the scenes and they're littered with imagery and symbolism, which for anybody who's called the African continent home will feel really familiar. The drumming, the large gatherings of people, the processing, the colour coordination, all of those things speak to the way that we do death. And for us in Ghana, and I'm going to be specific because Africa is a continent Continent. not a country so i'm going to speak about my country because otherwise somebody will be able to call me out and they would be right but for us in ghana someone's death and their burial are an integral part of the social fabric the how you do it and the what you do are really 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 infinitely important and so for me that's why shuri's outfit in particular was just so important she had a symbol on the front that looks like four hearts that are joined together at their their bottom peak Mm-hmm. And that symbol is an Adinkra symbol that's from Ghana. And the name of that symbol is Nyamejia, and it means God's tree. Now, especially her wearing that fabric at T'Challa's funeral, a tree cut down in the movie storyline, but also in real life all too soon. Mm. I just found the symbolism of that all too fitting. And 
when we do funerals in Ghana, the fabric we choose, the colours we choose, the symbols on those fabric, they all say something about how that family feels about that person, how the friends feel about that person. And so to kind of see those displays twice, I found myself kind of really at home in those because they, I think they, they pitched it right. Mm. And that kind of measured nature goes all the way through to Queen Ramonda and Shuri sat on the shore and later Nakia and Shuri sat on the shore burning the funeral clothes as a sign of the end of mourning. And that outward sign is a representation of an internal pivot point. I remember when my grandpa died, we all had a fabric, it was black and brown and every immediate member of the family had this fabric and we had it tied around our wrists and we wore it for the whole period of mourning. And then one day, early in the morning, the men came to the house, we drank gin, we handed our cloth over and it was taken off the compound. And that marked the significant end to that period of mourning and the beginning of our continuing life going forward from that point. And so again, even even in that, the funeral clothes being like, right, and now we now we start again. I just, it's stunning. I love this so much because I think that in British culture, I don't think we give permission to mourn and then I don't think we give permission to stop mourning. Mm. So we just have this kind of subdued, elongated pain um, when someone dies because there isn't this distinct time where we totally express our grief and then we have permission to move on. I think that's beautiful. And my grandma was locked in a room for three days in her house. So after my grandpa died, she was locked in a room for three days, no food, no water, sit, read your Bible, cry. That was the prescription. That's hardcore. Yeah. She had she had someone sat outside her room making sure that she only came out to use the bathroom. Goodness. The God in Film podcast does not endorse locking people's grandmas in rooms. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, Seth, does disciplined like demarcation, does that translate into your emotions, would you say? Can you put the grief down because you've said we're going to agree for this much time and then we're going to stop. Yeah, and I I think the thing is it's not an arbitrary period of time. So in in Ghana, there, when somebody dies, there are a series of meetings. So there's the one-week meeting, which is not necessarily at one week, but there there are particular points where the family will gather. And so there's, there's a process with which you move through. And I think the thing about that process means that you can't escape it. Which, interestingly, in the movie, I think Shuri does, or at least mm. tries to kind of circumvent that passage. But I remember losing an aunt, and I didn't go, I, I couldn't face, my aunt died from cancer, and I couldn't face the idea of going home. Because when I left her, I said in faith, I will see you soon. And yeah. I couldn't. I couldn't emotionally face going back there. But then I found having then not been through that process, like I had done with other family members, I found it really hard to, like Louise, like you said, to be able to then put it down because you go to Ghana in the funeral period, there is no escaping it. There is space to mourn. And whether you like it or not, you are you are taking it. Or leave, don't be around. But um, I think, I think because it's more of a community thing. It's not, there is obviously you and your mourning, but there's also mm. the community and the wider family. And it's something that we do together. We choose our fabric together. We choose our words together and we put it down together. And I think, I think that rhythm of doing it is really helpful because you make the space 
and then you say okay and now we're going to take the next step and that doesn't mean that you're not sad it doesn't mean that there aren't things that you still got to work through but it means that you're making an active decision together as a community to take that next step forward i think for me the the deaths in the family that we've had in, in my family recently have been a tipping point for a lot of acrimony the person who died was the one person that was still that everybody could still agree that they liked for one of a better phrase so that funeral meant an end not just to that person but also saying goodbye to to that side of my family and i'm wondering about would you say this kind of process this enforced process does it help with like family healing or would you say that families are just as bloody minded as they always are families are messy and I think probably looking at my family, you could say both cases. We have, in the tribe I'm from, as Gaz, we say that if you're having a fight with somebody and somebody dies, bury the hatchet. No questions, no quibbling, no ifs or buts. If somebody dies, put it aside, bury it. Because the the, the death is so significant and it should help you put everything else into perspective. Now... That's certainly the case for at least some of the funeral period. But, you know, like anything, some tribal wars run deep. You can't just like, put them in a box and hope that they're never going to come out again. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think it provides an opportunity for maybe some of those hard conversations to be had to have common ground. But I don't think the outcome is... Is guaranteed, like in any family anywhere in the world. Okay. Put people okay. together in a room and, man, anything could happen. Yeah, yeah. What? Hang on, you did say something at one point there about your tribe. Mm-hmm. I've known you for more years than I care to think about. What, you've <laughs> never mentioned your, your tribe before. What, what was that? So Ghana as a country has uh-huh. lots and lots of different tribes. So your tribe tells you more about your culture and your language and in some parts your food as well so my i'm my husband gets really upset with me because technically you're meant to automatically check your father's tribe but i grew up in the region of my mother's tribe that's the language i speak that's the food i eat that's the culture i identify with which makes me an aberration by god name (laughs) (laughs) because my name is from my father's tribe you if, when I say my name, people go, ah, you must be from this tribe. And in my head, I'm like, yeah, technically speaking, but I actually more identify with this other tribe, which is on my maternal side. Mm. My husband's tribe is different again. But what that of means, course. practically speaking, is we speak completely different mother tongues. So Really? In our relationship with each other, we speak English. I speak a little <laughs> bit of his language. I speak a little bit of his. We both speak each other's languages terribly. And so we tend to speak each other's languages when we're like trying to make a joke or make something really silly because, man, his gar is bad and my tree is worse. <laughs> like, how, with my linguistic hat on, how, like, how different are we talking? Are we like, is it like, North Whalian to South Whalian, or is it like even more? It's like Chinese and Welsh. Right. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> Love it. Very, very <laughs> different. But but like any like any nation, the part of the culture is tied up in the language. So there are 
there are jokes and things that he says in his language that you translate them to English and not only are they not funny, they don't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> so I will learn one day, I'm sure. Fab. So I think this particular part of the Wakandan story was a really important pause. Acknowledging the loss of Chadwick Boseman, what it means for a generation of young black people who, like me, went, ah, yes, there it is, and to have Mm. that taken away. I think the movie did a good job of pausing and acknowledging that, and I think that's really important. And for me, the faith in the film is so tightly bound to Shuri's journey through grief and loss how she wrestles to find her place and identity in all of that. And the biblical parallel for me is the story of Job. So for those of you who don't know your Bible or the Old Testament, Job is a man who has known success and wealth. He's really excelled in his area. He's well renowned by others. He's had children, albeit than quite foolish, even by the Bible standards <laughs> in the most part. And he stood at the pinnacle of society. And then this season comes along seemingly out of nowhere and he loses everything. His children all die in a freak accident. His businesses collapse. His staff are murdered and he becomes physically unwell. He's left desolate with only his wife and his life to speak of. Famously, Job's three friends come and sit with him, first in silence and mourning. Then they do a whole lot of talking. Job gets so fed up with the rubbish advice that he calls them worthless physicians and a miserable comfort. Job himself eventually gets really angry with God and calls him unjust. And when God finally answers him, Job doesn't get the answer that he expected. If warm, fuzzy, friendly, cuddly God is what he was angling for, he could not have received a more different response. And the whole experience for Job was humbling and eventually Mm. through God's very, very comprehensive response to all of Job's accusations and all of the things that his friends said, Job comes to understand his place and eventually knows the return of everything that he's lost. Mm. Now, although Shuri's story is not exactly the same, there are some similarities. She loses her brother the sovereignty of Wakanda is threatened by the West, then by Namor. She loses her dignity and her royalty in being abducted. Then her mother is murdered by Namor in a freak attack, all the while trying to make sense of who she is and what her life means to Wakanda. And like Job's friends, there are characters aplenty who offer her suggestions of what she should do and how she should do it. And her resounding answer is no. I'm not going that way. Mm. We see her wrestle with doubt about the ancestors and the ancestral plane, even to the point where she does the ritual and she has the heart-shaped herb. She doesn't really even want to do the ritual properly, and I think it's because she kind of doubts that it will even work. And then to top it all off, when she gets the ancestral plane of all the people she could possibly come face to face with, it's Killmonger. I mean, who wants to meet Killmonger in the ancestral plane? You hope that he's like buzzed off like a fly and disappeared somewhere, but no, there he is. That was a moment in that film because you you expect it to be Angela Bassett, don't you? You expect mm-hmm. it to be it to be Ramonda, you know, or anybody else. The thing I've always enjoyed about Killmonger is Ryan Coogler. He's probably one of my favorite directors, and the way he talked about Killmonger, he said he wanted to bring 
a character into the MCU who had the energy of a Tupac, you know, mm-hmm. a, a really sort of really angry, sort of militant, but also incredibly charismatic character. So for the small amount of time that he is on the screen, you're absolutely captivated. And you're also trying to work out what exactly that outfit he is that he's wearing, you know? <laughs> but it's... <laughs> he he distills it into the same debate we've been having since well I say we, we we he distills it into the same debate that they've been having about do you respond with peaceful protest or do you respond with violence doesn't it because by mm-hmm. that point no more flipping no more Namor I, I've called him Namor for like 20 30 years i'm not calling him no more now he's absolutely sort of smashed wakanda and the, the the question is do we do we fight back do we do we go to war do we destroy somebody else you know and that tension is mental because that i can't see the right answer for it a lot of the time and the fact that i think emotionally if somebody hurts you you want to hurt them back with interest but at the moment where we see Shuri, where she's having that moment of like, what kind of person is she? Is she going to be somebody who's who's a warmonger? Is she going to be somebody who destroys children in a, in a rage? And how she deals with that. I liked how messy that was. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the interesting thing about Shuri. She, she like Joe, was expecting warm, fuzzy blanket, ancestral plane, mm. meeting family members and maybe kind of coming face to face with her grief in a place where she felt that she could dialogue about what was going on. But except what she got was a harsh reality and it was the thing that she needed to hear, but she yeah. didn't want to hear it. And the more I think about kind of Shuri's story, to me, she looks like somebody who's in deconstruction. And I don't take that word lightly. Um, I, th- I think pulling apart faith or anything that you believe is really important. Faith and doubt are huge pieces of a pieces of a puzzle. And you can't, in my opinion, have one without the other. But you have Shuri, who's kind of sitting there thinking like, okay, I, I thought that everything I knew was set in stone. I had mm-hmm. these dowels driven into the ground and I knew that I knew that I knew and now all of this stuff has happened and I don't know what to do with it, who I am in light of it and whether the things that I've believed spiritually are still the same. You don't necessarily want to be having that conversation with Killmonger. Yeah. <laughs> like if any of us well, could choose, that's not where we would thing. go. Shuri is an atheist at the start of the film. Mm-hmm. There's the scene where Ramonda sort of takes her out into the middle of nowhere and she says, I felt your your brother's sort of hand on my shoulder. And she said, Ramonda, she says to her mother, that was your own mind doing that. And she's very much the empirical scientist. If it can't be proven, then it's not a real thing. So what's fascinating when they actually, when she actually wakes up from the ancestral plane, she's properly freaked out. And part of it, I think, is Killmonger has told her all these things. But also, check it out: the ancestral plane exists. This isn't mm-hmm. this is an actual thing. So you get to watch somebody struggling with the world as they knew it. And the, the for want of a better phrase, the fun thing about that is, it's kind of always the same whether somebody's going from being 
a non-believer to a believer to vice versa. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Everything that you thought you knew mm. disappears up in the air. And and I think it's a, it's a really interesting kind of vignette onto what you do with that. Yeah. And I know there are lots of conversations in Christianity going on about that. What do you do when the thing that you thought you knew with all your heart and with all your soul gets shaken? What happens when your family member dies and there isn't a great, wonderful explanation for it. What happens mm. when you prayed and that person wasn't healed? Is God still God in light of those things? Is he still good? Is he still kind? Is he still fighting for you? Or did you make it all up in your mind? And these are huge, deep questions. Job asks those questions. Yeah. Sure, he asks those questions. And I don't think any human being can escape that. And we, we know that at points of distress trauma grief every single human being regardless of what their worldview is their faith their religion or lack thereof will question things yeah and we have to think about not just what questions we ask but where we go looking for the answers and it's interesting because in job god doesn't ever explain to job why those things happened mm -hmm. He kind of, he just kind of mocks him and goes, what, you're questioning me? Were you there when I created the world? <laughs> you know, there's that. Mm -hmm. And actually, Job never gets the answers, never gets a reason why these things happen. And at the end, even though he gets a lot of his life restored, it's not a reward for faith. It's not, well done, you, you carried on believing here, have, have some new children. You know, it, it, there's not a reward. It's just God goes, actually, I'm going to give you this now. And it's as mm -hmm. seemingly arbitrary from a human mind mm. as when God took it all away in the first place, there was no real reason for that. Mm. Which isn't very satisfying, is it? Because we want to no. tie it up in a nice, pretty little bow. And when I when I see Shuri, that's the same thing. She wants, I see her as somebody who, she, want, she wants to be able to draw a neat box and put a line underneath it and be like, and now that's done. This made sense. I've ticked all the boxes, everything balances and that's mm. okay. But that's certainty, it's not faith. Hmm. Yeah, and I really love what you said about that faith and doubt are they go hand in hand. They're like 100%. two sides of the same coin, oh, yeah. and you can't have faith without mm. doubt. Um, I I just find that it's just it's going to stay with me. That Thank well, you, the Seth. the only time that the doubt will be erased is when you're dead. So if you've got doubt, that's just another way of saying you're still alive. You know. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I... Yeah. Uh, I am... Um, Giles, you probably won't remember this. And, um, okay. Giles, That's not stressful this. at all. When it, when somebody <laughs> says, Giles, do you remember that thing that you don't remember? Well, so like you said, you and I have known each other for decades. Um, when I When I first met Giles, it was very much leather coats and looking very cool. Damn and... Right. I still remember a conversation in Penrod kind of youth room upstairs and we were chatting about this quote and it said, I would rather live and die believing in God and find out that he didn't exist than die and find out that he did. And I remember vividly having a debate with you about <laughs> that statement, whether it was any good or not, but that's something that's kind of sat with me. And it's Pascal. Yeah, wager, I was going to say. It? Yeah, mm -hmm. that's Pascal's wager. Yeah. So, and there's um, this thing called yeah. Socratic doubt, that if you've not doubted, have you truly yeah. believed? And yeah. 
yeah i i don't think you can escape those two things no together yeah so when i got divorced all of my friends got really freaked out because they're like oh my goodness if you've got divorced maybe i should get divorced and they all started doubting their marriages and they all started look sort of viewing their sort of weaknesses within their relationships Mm. and everybody for about a month or two got really insecure about their own relationships but all of them stayed with them and then their relationship was stronger because they had that moment where they didn't take it for granted and they questioned it and they I guess deconstructed it they they took it apart and actually worked out what is good do I still want to be with this person and they all decided yes Mm. and actually they're still together you know 10 years later so I think I think it's yeah it's a really i think it's a really helpful process to go through yeah and that i I sometimes get that when i'm when i'm looking at people going when when i look into the way some blokes talk and i go wow you are you are really confident your wife isn't going to leave you are you you know (laughs) the the maxim i've been working to is uh treat her like you're always trying to trying to get her and then you'll never lose her you know so far that seems to have worked pretty well amen brother I was going to say that um, it's interesting that you talk about people essentially deconstructing and then coming to the conclusion that that's good. And I think that there's a fear, especially in Christian circles, especially when you use the word deconstruction, that deconstruction is basically a path to destruction and destroying everything. Um, Mm -hmm. But there is actually in that there is the ability to kind of pick things apart. For me, I would I would think I would say that I've deconstructed my faith at a point and the conclusion of that for me is no I still believe what I believe and I still believe that God is who he says he is and I still believe the things he said to me about my life and there are things that are really hard that I don't understand yeah yeah I I find that as well like I um I think the thing that I find I struggle with sometimes is when people's faith has a a wobble when something bad happens to them part of me wants to be like did you not expect that that was gonna happen somewhere along the line you know like mm-hmm. I, I obviously had a, a sort of traumatic uh injury as a as a child and then i became a christian so for me god making sure nothing bad ever happens to you that was almost never part of the deal do you know what i mean mm. for me like God can not answer your prayers and things cannot go the way you want and God is still on the throne. Do you, do you know what I mean? Mm. He's still he's still sovereign. He's still he's still the most important thing in my life even if I'm not getting everything I want right away or even even more than that even if I'm not getting things that I've I've sort of wanted or needed for for years. You still you still keep asking with expectation but if it doesn't happen then it doesn't happen. Does that make sense? Mm. yeah do you know what epistemic distance is i do not but i can't wait to find out okay so this is hick philosopher um john right and he was saying that epistemic distance is the perfect distance that god is to us so that he's always there but doesn't impact free will so Mm. if every time if you became a christian and then god made everything perfect in your Mm -hmm. life then actually people would then just become a christian because they'd want everything and it would be obvious that God existed yeah. and there would be, you know, um, unrefuted evidence. And therefore we have no choice but to believe it. Mm. So actually, I think maybe the same in, in, in even when you are a Christian, that, that there still has to be that faith, that God has to be just very slightly above sort of like 
absolute certainty that God is always there and everything's going to be okay. Yeah. Um, and also this thing about healing is that, you know, if you are a Christian, you do believe that you will be healed eventually, whether it's on this earth or whether mm-hmm. it's in the next, you know, that actually there is a time when, but actually while we're here, God, yeah, it's epistemic distance, the perfect distance so that you can believe if you want to, but you're not forced to. That's fascinating. Thank you for sharing that with us. And for me, then the question is, what is the prize? Is the prize warm fuzzies and a golden cookie when you get to heaven or is the prize Jesus? No, I'll take the cookie, actually, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Giles, you were so fickle. (laughs) You had me, you had me at cookies, you know. There is um, one other parallel. Well, actually, there are very many other parallels, but I'm only going to focus on one more this sure. this evening. Because I'm the poor soul is... that's got to edit it, so... Yeah, sus, buddy. <laughs> but this is about Namor, and mm-hmm. to me, Namor is like the devil incarnate. He pretty much says it himself in the movie. He says, I am like your worst nightmare. And I am the person who you can't necessarily put your faith and trust in unless you are on my team and on my side. Mm. And I find him a really perplexing character. But to me, he's like the devil incarnate because you look at the story of the Bible and the devil's in the garden. He's he's deceiving, scheming, being deceptive and then destroying anyone or anything that comes in his path as much as possible. And to me, that feels like quintessential Namor. And yet, I don't understand why Shuri, for some unbeknownst reason, tries to make an alliance with him. We can understand- Because he's beautiful. Yeah. Because he's very attractive. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, I want to make an alliance. <laughs> <laughs> Hot guy with wings on his feet. Have you seen him? That, that is the new euphemism. I want to make an alliance with her. I want to make an alliance with him hard. Yeah. Let's sit down and negotiate, baby. Sure, he's still a, a, a woman and is still, you know, red-blooded human yeah. being. Oh, God. This is like so, here. And actually, that's that's seduction and that's tempt- temptation, which is exactly what Satan is. So that, that, hot, that fits in with that idea as well, doesn't it? I don't want to come for you, but it, it feels a bit reductive to, to sort of come Satan because, like, from what Matt talked about, he is very much that anti-hero. Some, he is incredibly arrogant. He is incredibly flawed, but he is still absolutely capable of doing good things. And, yeah, absolutely. Um, and obviously Satan isn't. Um, it's... Mm, well, it depends on your perspective you and where you're stood. Nabal does good uh, things for his people. Oh, the devil's yeah. apocrypha. Go on. The devil's apocrypha is a, is a retelling of the story of Genesis where God is the baddie and Satan is the goodie. And God is trying to stop um, humans having knowledge. And, and, and Satan's like, no, no, we should give humans knowledge. Sh- humans should know things and they should be able to make their own decisions. And it's, and it's, God, and it's God that's stopping them. So it's interesting, isn't it? Because actually that's the same as Namor, that if you look at a different perspective, a different viewpoint... That actually, what he's doing is is protecting what he believes is well, right. That's a that's a really rich uh, tradition. Like that goes back to like Milton and Paradise Lost, where yeah. Milton mm-hmm. kind of makes Satan the most interesting character in the entire story. Yeah. I think the 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 issue is how can I put it? If you humanize Satan, I think you kind of miss the point. 
you know if you if you make him a complex multifaceted character with uh, that's sympathetic i mean it is brilliant from a storytelling perspective but the dude is literal evil you know that's like mm-hmm. that's the that's the conceit i guess that that we sort of take on board as 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 christians so i think the thing I saw with Namor wasn't strictly that he was evil, but I saw him as somebody who uh, gave in to his prejudices and embraced them. So all surface dwellers can't be trusted. All surface dwellers don't deserve my respect. All surface dwellers need to be sort of uh, feared and and uh, and hated. And that's one of the options that was available to Shuri is that every, all outsiders could be like this. All outsiders could be uh, are after our vibranium and that sort of thing. Anybody who's read the comics or spent any time or just thinking about the character knows that Namor is... He's not somebody I'd like to be on a long car journey with, but whether he's <laughs> the actual literal devil, I still think that's, that's stretching it a bit. Do you know what I mean? Well, I didn't... I guess what I'm saying is that in in this part Mm. of the story arc because obviously this film like every other marvel film is teeing itself up for a sequel we're going to see more of namor we're going to see more of shuri we're going to see more of their interaction and when i look into my crystal ball (laughs) i don't see them being the best of pals forever and ever amen I, i i don't see that happening no the thing that i think is really interesting so namor basically wants to bend wakanda over backwards into being in his back pocket and essentially being i guess their heavies and at the same time, Shuri's just like, oh, well, maybe it'll be really beneficial if we rely on their strength in the seas, if they're going to come through all this vibranium anyway. Mm-hmm. And so on the surface, it looks like a mutual, an alliance that's mutually beneficial. But the terms with which Shuri's engaging with this is, do you know what? Let's make friends, not enemies. Mm. Whereas Namor's like, let's let them think they're our friends. And when time ticks over and when we've got what we want, we will turn on them and we will take everything that they've got too. And I mean, the that's, thing that's, that it, that's politics, you know? That's, it, is, it is the world. <laughs> you know? But it reminds you of this, um, this verse in Isaiah and it says, don't rely on the chariots of Egypt. Mm-hmm. Like, part of me wonders whether Shuri is making, she's, well, in my opinion, she's made a bad decision in making an, or trying to make an ally out of Namor in the hope that his physical strength and the breadth of his army and his people will be beneficial at a later point. In my mind, that's not the reason to make that that alliance. And I, and I feel like it's going to come back and bite her on the bum later. I mean, will narrative stakes come back and, and affect her? Yes, it, it would pretty much have to, but... The other option was mutually assured destruction. You know, the other option is we're going to keep coming for you. You're going to keep coming for us. There's no way to kind of cripple the foe. The only option was to absolutely obliterate them. So for me, you can judge her for making that choice. But I think the the, the key difference was that she made that choice for her people. And in simple terms, if you don't have a war, then you get more people alive to be part of your, com- your kingdom. So yay for that, you know? Mm, yeah. Awesome. Maybe I just don't like Namor. 
But um. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, I don't like Namor either. That, that guy can sort off, you know. So yeah. I can have him then. Yeah. So I can. Yeah. Have yeah. Him. yeah. Be yeah. my yeah. guest. Great, great, Be my guest. <laughs> like, thing is, right? If you like, Namor sort of is a big deal in the Fantastic Four, and he has spent so much flipping time trying to sort of get off with Sue Storm, like Mister Fantastic's misses, that you just like. Dude's just a dick, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> Louisa, you have him. You keep him busy, okay? Okay. I'm going to change him. <laughs> awesome source. Thank you so much, Sefa. That was amazing hearing all those things. And Louisa, thank you for coming in and, and frankly, just perving over Namor, frankly. <laughs> Uh, it's nice that I'm not the filthy one for once so I really appreciate that ladies and gentlemen if you have been thank you for listening to our superhero series we're going to take a little bit of a breather we'll come back later on in the year and do bring you some even more God in Film. If you want to check out what's on the Patreon, we've got our God in Music episode, we've got our God in Gaming episode, we've got bonus interviews and we're going to have even more for you. I think I'm going to take a bit of time, I'm going to think about what I'm going to do next. I have this niggling idea about a Critical of Religion series, which I thought could be fun to do. Uh, But we'll see how we go. Uh, In the meantime, Louisa, Sefa, have you had a good time? Oh, I've loved it. Thank you so much. What an honour to be here. How lovely. This has made my soul sing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. And lastly to you listeners, thank you so much for listening. Bye. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Adios. (laughs) God in Film is hosting created by Giles Goff That's me Mixing and editing by Giles Our logo was designed by Julie Walsh And our theme tune was composed by Rick Lee Fact checking and waffle editing by literally no one I've gone drunk with the lack of oversight Please rate and review Unless it's a one star In which case Just know that while your words may cut deep God in Film is forever Forever